Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Between a full-time job in IT and a full-time job in podcasting, it gets harder and harder to sit down and read the books I'm interested in. This is where Audible comes in. I can listen on my daily commute, relaxing, or while out running errands and still get in the books I've been wanting to get into. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. Now you can try Audible risk-free with a special 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. That's audibletrial.com forward slash nerdery and murdery. Don't let your busy life get in the way of that great book you've been wanting to read. Go get your free trial of Audible today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. This is Jeffrey, and we've talked about many times before that I experience problems and struggles with my mental health. And really, without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy does work. It's helped for me. But but what is is therapy exactly? It's it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships at work or you're not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's really time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles. And, and it's time to start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And there's a special offer to Nerdery and Murdery listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash nerderyandmurdery. That's betterhelp.com forward slash nerderyandmurdery. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. You're listening to the sweet, sensual, and serendipitous sounds of Nerdery and Murdery. Sig, damn it. All right, welcome to episode 56 of Nerdery and Murdery. 56. I'm Zig with your Nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your Murdery. Uh, always bad at doing that. We don't, we don't do this open very well at all. <laughs> you figure after 56 episodes and a few bonuses, we'd have it down by now. But maybe when we get to 100. Bonuses and crossovers. Uh, oh, 
you know, we're, we're of course in the future and we just did our second crossover with two geeks and a microphone last week. And our part two comes out this week, but for those of you that's in the past, you've apparently possibly already heard it. So (laughs) if not go back and listen, it's pretty good. Yeah, definitely go back and listen to the crossovers though. It's a lot of fun hanging out with those guys. I, I, I've loved those two crossovers. There's so Uh, much, there's so much fun to hang out with. And I guess maybe also in the past, I think you are doing a solo. Well, without, yeah, yeah, they asked me to join in on a doctor who, uh, a doctor who episode with them. Cause I, I, I I do doctor, but it'll be like, it'll be like, me from our show, it'll be Mike from Two Geeks and a Microphone and, and Brian from Three Geeky Dads. Yeah. So, so if you're not lis- if you're not listening to Two Geeks and a Microphone and Three Geeky Dads, you really should. They're both very, very good shows. Yes. Uh and I I love that Zig is doing a without me project. <laughs> yes, a, a, a tertiary crossover. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was at the encouragement of Jeffrey. He's like, I don't care. Go do it. Right. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I think you should do it. <laughs> Doctor Who is your thing. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I do. I do enjoy the Doctor Who. Oh, I wanted to give a shout out to Open Invite Podcast. Uh, it's a friend of mine at work has just started it recently. It's all on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very conversational. Um so if you if you're not out there listening to it, it's called Open Invite uh, Podcast. What's it about? Sports and dad stuff. Oh, cool. I mean, it's not some of my favorite topics, but uh, they're uh, they're really engaging. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it's actually my boss, Travis Curley, and I did make sure that I could say his name. <laughs> but yeah, it's really, really, it's really fun. Since you're giving the plug to his podcast, I would hope so. Yeah. I, yes. Exactly. I was like, hey, I'm going to mention your name. <laughs> He's like, uh, okay. Cool. Well, with all of that, uh, I think you should uh, take over the show, Zig. Okay. Okay. So since we're going to do some, uh, some nerdery today, I, I figured I would, I would open with uh, walk on left or road. Uh, fine. Walk on, walk on right or road. Fine. Walk in middle. Squash squish, like squish like grape. Today we're doing Cobra Kai. Awesome. Love, love, love this show. And, I, you know, I remember when I first heard that the show was going to come out, I was like, oh, this is going to be cheesy. I'm going to watch it, but mm-hmm. but it's going to be cheesy and uh-huh. it's not going to be that great. And originally it came out on YouTube Red. I got YouTube Red just so I could watch the first season. Yeah, after I watched, because they gave you the first two or three episodes for free, mm-hmm. and then you had to subscribe to YouTube Red to get more. And after the first two episodes, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm hooked. I'm so getting YouTube Red. Yep. And then they moved over to Netflix, and I already have Netflix. So we've now got four seasons under our belt and waiting patiently for a fifth. And it's a yes. great show. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. And it's, you know, um, William Zabka and Ralph Macchio are more, and Martin Cove and, and Thomas Ian Griffin as well, are more like, this show is about the kids. We are just there to kind of help their story along. And that's the way they kind of view it from. 
even though there's a lot of other stuff going on in the background, the stuff with the adults is the B story. The stuff with the kids is the A story. And and that's the way they wanted to portray it. And it's I, like they're, I disagree kids, with that. I think the, it's I think it's a one A, one B. I wouldn't say a a B story at all. I I, I think there's pretty, there's been very equal time for both the adults and the kids. And part of it is throughout these four seasons is watching them all grow. Yes. Yes. And, and and getting to the point where they're almost where everybody is cool and then something happens and 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 and, and those old rivalries just come back bubble up back up to the surface. <clears throat> but what's amazing about the series and the three movies that preceded it, actually four, um, is that it's about it's about loss of a father figure. Mm-hmm. Right. And how the search of that comes, but it's pretty deep for, you know, what, what started out as a really simple idea. Right. Yeah. Uh, cause both, both Ralph, Ralph Macchio and William Zabka, 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 yeah, Zabka. Zabka, um, Johnny and, 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 uh, Daniel, Daniel, um, that they, they both had a loss of father figures in their life. Danny, uh, Daniel before, uh, Karate Kid even started. His father was already gone, and Johnny, as we find out in Cobra Kai, his father was also gone, and he had to deal with a ste- with a stepfather who really wasn't a real good guy, played by the great yeah. great Ed Asner. Oh yeah, Ed um, Asner played that role really really well. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And and then and then it spills over into the kids because not only do you have Miguel and Robbie who are also needing father figures, but Daniel's own son needs a father figure. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel's own son. And well it, as well when you find out later in the story the the, the who we thought were the chief bad guys uh uh, Crease played by the wonderful Martin Cove and Terry Silver played by Thomas Ian Griffin also had the same problem. Um, they all had that problem. Yeah, you you get alluded to that with Crease. Did you get that with Terry Silver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But he, he, you know, they didn't so much show it, but when he's talking about it with Crease, he's like, "Look, I was out of this. You brought me back." Mm-hmm. You know, you know. I, but I at just one did- point he. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I may need to go back and watch that again, but I'm pretty sure he was like, you know, I, I want to say the line was like, I didn't have a dad either. But back in the 80s, it was more about, you know, cocaine and adrenaline. That's what I was all into. Right, right, right. Because, um, yeah, because I didn't get that with Terry Silver and, and, and that may have to be another watch through for me as well. But you definitely I, get I, that. I just did some yesterday. <laughs> OK. Yeah. Lorelai and I binged it yesterday. She's like, this show is really good. I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah, and and again, amazingly awesome, considering that the overall idea sounded like it was going to be very cheesy. Oh yeah, it uh, started with a simple idea, and it grew from that. But it, it, it's it's a, they explore the loss of a father and how people can fill those roles and take advantage of people. Well, and another cool theme for for this series that I really enjoy is. The villains in here are not the villains in their own stories. No, especially especially Johnny. Johnny yeah. does not see himself as the bad guy. He saw Daniel 
as the bad guy. He saw Daniel as the bully. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and that makes for a very interesting tale as well as he is telling Miguel basically his story of the Karate Kid from his point of view. Yeah. And then Miguel and Daniel sit in uh, that old that old yellow Ford. Was it a Ford? I think no, so. Old yellow Chrysler. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, or sitting in that convertible, which is Ralph Macchio's, by the way. Ralph oh. Macchio bought that car. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, he was like, oh, no. I, it came up for auction. He's like, I have to have this car. It's like, really? But it was just a proper movie. He's like, no, 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 no. That car was great to drive. <laughs> <laughs> There's several scenes that shows me driving that car. So, yeah, that one, the one that they used is the one that was originally used in the film. Ralph Macchio's had it restored and, and upkept, and he drives it every once in a while. Wow. Yeah, it's his. Um, he made that. I think he bought it off of all the Broadway money he was making. He did a lot of stuff in Broadway back in the mid-90s. Yeah. Plus, his check for my cousin Vinny wasn't bad either. Right. <sighs> So, yeah, I, I, I will give a little background to the series uh, real quick. Um, so Cobra Kai is an American martial arts comedy drama television series and a sequel to the original Karate Kid film series uh, written by uh, Robert Mark Kamen. Now, Robert Mark Kamen wrote all three of the Karate Kid 1, Karate Kid 2, Karate Kid 3. I don't think he wrote the fourth one. Which is not as good. No, no, it's not bad, but it's no. not as good. No, it's um, fun. It's fun to go back and you're you're seeing basically Mr. Miyagi with with a, you're you're seeing Mr. Miyagi with a whole new student because Daniel is gone by this point, yeah, and, and he takes on a new student. So it's it's okay. It's it's fun, but it's definitely not the quality of the first three. No, no, it's not. You could tell that that uh, uh, came and didn't write it, and John. Uh, Avildsen also directed all three. Mm -hmm. So they were all written and directed by the, the same people. Um, Mark Kamen ended up writing for Luke Basson. He wrote the fifth element. Oh, really? Yeah. He also wrote transporter and taken. I'm not so crazy about those, but he wrote the fifth element as well. Love the fifth element. Yes. Yes. Lilo Dallas multipass. Um, so yeah, uh, Ralph Macchio and William Zabka reprised their roles as Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, respectively, from the 1984 film The Karate Kid and its sequels, Karate Kid Part 2 and The Karate Kid Part 3. Um, but as Jeffrey alluded to, um, the series is about the show from the other, the other side. And I want to say originally when they wrote that, or maybe even when they were direct, you know, writing the second film, you kind of see that Johnny's not really the bad guy. Right. It was, it was more crease was the bad guy in Cobra Kai. They go through the, the lens a little deeper and you find out, yeah, crease is the bad guy, but he didn't start out that way. Hey, and I, I always, I always see Crease as the bad guy. Him and Terry Silver, they are definitely yeah. the bad guys. I, I don't see them as, as good guys at all. Yeah, yeah Martin Cove as, as Crease and Thomas Ian Griffin as Terry, Terry Silver. Interesting fact: Thomas Ian Griffin and uh, William Zab Zabka are the only two martial art, actual martial arts fighters. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Thomas Ian Griffin started out as a martial arts guy and got out of film. That's why they got him. He's he's actually pretty good. And uh, 
William Zabka picked it up from the training of the original Karate Kid uh-huh. and kept up with it. Um, I think that actually it's not karate. I think they're actually learning uh, using uh, Taekwondo and Chinese Kung Fu. But they use the word karate because it's what people knew in 1984. Sure. You know, and and the 80s come into play so much in Cobra Kai. And it's it's very funny that as as I was thinking more more about the show is one of the themes that Cobra Kai takes from the 80s, which is a, a, a very 80s thing. And let's think about Cheers and Night Court and mm-hmm. other shows where you have a lead character <laughs> and a lead female character that you're always like, God, I wish they would just get together. I wish they would just get over their fighting and get together. And you have that here because you're constantly like, God, I wish Daniel and Johnny would get together. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting in the one scene where Allie is there at the dinner table with them, Johnny and Daniel and Daniel's wife. She's like, you guys are more alike than you realize. You both started out from the same place. Yes, they should. I think if you guys could just forgive each other, you'd be the best of friends. Yes, because they should be best friends. Yes. Uh, You know, they they are so much alike, and they really have – they have a lot of common goals, even though Johnny's way of getting there is very different than Daniel's way of getting there. Yes. They should be the best of friends, and just something always happens to just tear them back apart. Yeah, derail it. As you as you said earlier, from Johnny's point of view, Daniel was the bully. He came out of nowhere and messed up Johnny's life. Right. Um. Yeah, it's crazy. Um. And and again, if if for nothing else, if you watch, and I want to say it's season three, the season, this, the episode with Allie and Daniel, and Johnny and Daniel's wife sitting around a table talking about it. I think that scene gives more about this series than any other scene around, at least as from the adult's perspective. Oh, sure. And the kids are basically replaying the adult's roles. Yeah. But they, they kind of weave in and out. Yeah. Yeah. Because Uh, this series is also about bullying. Yes. Very much so. Especially season four. Yeah. Um, Because one of the kids that got bullied the most at the beginning of the season or, or the series becomes one of the biggest bullies. Mm-hmm. I was, I was literally heartbroken when Daniel's son became a bully. Yeah. Heartbroken. Um, some of the other stars are Courtney Hingler, Jolo, Zolo, Mar, Marduena. That's Miguel. Yes, that's Miguel. Uh, Tanner Buchanan. Uh, I believe that's, I believe that's Eli Moskowitz or Hawk. Uh, Mary Mouser, uh, Jacob Bertram. No, Jacob Bertram is Hawk. I'm sorry. Uh, Gianni DiCenzo. Peyton List is uh, Tori. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanessa Rubio. And of course, Mark Coven, Thomas Ian Griffith. Peyton List is also a very interesting character. Um, yes. I think she's a very good actress. Um, Tori? I, Tori, absolutely. Tori is one of my favorite characters in the series. I would agree with that because yeah. her Sorry, and Eli Moskowitz, her journey, um, her, her journey is just fascinating, and uh-huh. and you really her journey f- mirrors Daniel's somewhat, yeah. somewhat. 
you know, although she, you know, she definitely stays on the, on the bully side for quite a while until, you know, it it looks like, as you see in season four, I think we're going to see her kind of take a turn in season five uh, with the, with the big letdown of how the tournament turned out and yeah. and why the tournament turned out the way it is. I'm not going to spoil it here because it's really, yeah. it's new enough that people can go see it. But mm-hmm. I think, I think we're definitely going to see a turn with Tori. Um, also big shout out uh, to uh, Don, the dragon Wilson, who, who has, I'm assuming reprised his role as one of the fighters in the original, in the original movie, Don, the dragon Wilson was one of the fighters. Uh, he was also the trainer on set. Um, hmm. One of the judges, it's Don the Dragon Wilson. It's like, oh, look at that. Look at that. Don the Dragon Wilson, very famous martial arts guy from the 80s. Uh, he was mostly used as a trainer for everybody else. Uh, hmm. Great, great kickboxer. Hmm. Um, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Say Anything, the guy that breaks Lloyd Dobler's nose, Don the Dragon Wilson. Well, and another thing from Cobra Kai, and and you you go all the way back to season one for this is it's also a rags to riches, riches to rags story, you yes. know, because Johnny had everything. Yeah. Well, he started he he started he started out poor. His mom married a rich guy, right? And he got to have the rich life, right? Um, and, and then, you know, we don't find out until Cobra Kai that that life wasn't as good as we thought it was. Yeah. And then we, you know, we've, we, we start off with Johnny and he's just, he's just at a low point in his life. He's got yeah nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and it's him trying to, it's him trying to gain what he lost in the eighties and not necessarily riches, but that the, the, the fame and the championship. And yeah, well, this the sense of self, the sense of self-worth because he derived a lot of his self-worth from being, it wasn't about the money, right? It was about, it was about being a champion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and he's, yeah, he's, he is at a low point in his life and, and he actually is able to start his own business in Southern California, which is not an easy task. Right. Um, and, and he was doing okay. He, he was doing okay. But it seems like there's a few times where Daniel kind of, be, because of this old rivalry, kind of screwed Johnny over a couple of times. Oh, sure. And you're meant and to, I don't think Daniel that. realized that's what he was doing. It was like, oh, my God. You know, Johnny has struggled to get this and, and, and you cut his legs out from under it. Right. And then, you know, losing his, losing his dojo to crease. And so, oh, again, a little, sorry, circling back as we do. So 34 years after being defeated by Daniel LaRusso in the 1984 All Valley Karate Tournament, Johnny Lawrence, now in his 50s, works as a part time handyman. And lives in an apartment in Reseda, Los Angeles. Um, is that having, is that the same apartment that Daniel was in? I don't know if it was the same apartment. But I think it was the same complex. That, that's more what I meant. The same complex. I thought yes, it was. I think it was the same complex. If not, it was definitely in the same neighborhood. Right. Um. And whereas uh, whereas Daniel lives in Encino and has a nice wealthy life as a a, a car dealership owner. Mm-hmm. Um. 
which again, they talk about how he went from there. But uh, it, so in the end of the third movie, Daniel and Mr. Miyagi have opened a bonsai shop, fairly successful bonsai shop. Right. Um, but apparently that failed. <laughs> so Daniel went into selling cars and eventually turned turned what he had left from the bonsai shop into a car dealership that gives away free bonsai trees when you buy a car. Yes. That Daniel does in the back. Right. Because it was about the bonsai shop, you know? Well, and I love that callback to the series. I love the, I, I love the callbacks to the movies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode that just tore me apart was the one that was focused around Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. Um, and his death and, and Daniel going to the grave site and everything. That episode, that, that tore me up too. That was. That's Pat Morita's grave. They just yeah. put a plaque over it. Right. That is Pat Morita's grave from what I understand. Right. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of tribute to him. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know, they show, they show a shot of, you know, Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita standing around. They all love Pat, you know, because mm-hmm. he was a consummate Hollywood guy and had been for God. 50 years when he made Karate Kid. Right. You know, uh, lest we forget, Pat Morita was also Arnold in uh, in Happy in Days. Happy Days, right. <laughs> For a very long time. Yes, yes. Uh, Johnny lost his job due to an argument with one of his clients, and he uses a karate to defend this new teenage boy. boy uh, his neighbor, Miguel Diaz, from a group of bullies. Initially uh, reluctant, Johnny agrees uh, to train Miguel in karate and decides to reopen the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo and a chance to, again, become, make something of himself, you know, become a champion again. Um, but this is what starts the rivalry with Daniel, um, who won the All Valley in 84, then again in 85. Daniel has two kids, Samantha and Anthony. And, you know, Daniel's doing pretty well for himself. Um, but he's really struggling since Mr. Miyagi died mm-hmm. because Mr. Miyagi was his North Star. Right. Uh, Mr. And he, Miyagi. And he tries to he tries to teach it to his kids and Samantha takes to it. And she's very, very, yeah. very adept at it. And she takes to it. Whereas Anthony really has very little interest. Yeah. Yeah, you Anthony's <laughs> Anthony's a rich kid. He's a little shit, is yeah. what he is. Um, I don't think he's necessarily a bad kid. No, he's just he's just a spoiled little kid. And Daniel, yeah. Daniel doesn't really see it, and Daniel yeah. doesn't give him the attention that he gives Sam, and yeah. and Daniel doesn't realize that that really what Anthony needs is, is, is a stronger father figure that's going to pay him a lot more attention and probably bring the kid back around because a a lot of this is what leads Anthony to where he goes, especially in the bullying because Daniel's not as big in his life. No, no. You know, because he's, he's trying to help Sam. He's got his business and Daniel is also still Daniel is also still grieving Miyagi's death. Right. At the beginning of the series, even though Mr. Miyagi died 10, 12 years before, Daniel is still grieving that death. Mm-hmm. And Daniel has not figured out how to move on from that death. 
Well, he keeps. I, I mean, you think it's a silly little series, but all of these things are going on in the background, right? And they they give the actors time to play off that. Mm-hmm. And everybody they've cast is really, really good. Well, and Daniel keeps going back to various things with Mr. Miyagi and to the point where um, we go to where Daniel goes back to Okinawa because he really needs to find his center. He needs to find his balance. So he goes to where Mr. Miyagi taught him really to find himself and to find his center and to find his balance. And then we get the call back to Karate Kid 2 where you get uh, what's your name? What's her name? Well, Chosen. Oh, uh, Kimiko. Kimiko. Yeah. Uh, you know, he goes to talk to Kimiko and then he comes to Chosen. And I really, really love what they did with Chosen. Uh, yeah, because you think Chosen's going to be a bad guy. He's, But Chosen is messing with him because yeah. he's been waiting 30 years to pull that joke. Right. And then Chosen embraces Daniel because as far as Chosen's concerned, Daniel is family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you are Miyagi-Do as I am Miyagi-Do. We are brothers. And then Daniel's looking at this scroll. He's like, no, you can't have this scroll. You need to learn it. So Chosen shows him how the scroll works. He's like, this is part of Miyagi-Do that you weren't ever taught. Mm-hmm. And and I think the idea was, and I think Daniel, he may say it, but it's definitely alluded to, Mr. Miyagi never taught Daniel those pressure points because of Daniel's anger issues. Because Daniel had his anger issues. Sure. Probably stemming from the loss of his father. Well, and I really hope that Chosen becomes a bigger presence in this next season. And I really think he is because I think think he's going to be a very big player in this upcoming season. Chosen played by Yuzi Okamoto. Uh, He's great. Yeah. Oh, he is so funny. And he's funny. Yes. (laughs) Um. Uh, he was also in Brain Smasher, a love story, which I love. Brain Smasher, a love yeah, story. Brain, brain, brain Smasher, a love story is really, really funny. But he's a he's a he's part of a Chinese Tong, and every time he and his guys run into the room, everybody's like, "Look out for those ninjas!" And he stops and goes, "We are not ninjas." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and chosen. Uh, it, it, Chosen's really big on making the distinction of Okinawan and Japanese because that also plays a lot. That plays a lot out in the Okinawan story. Okinawans do not think of themselves as Japanese first. They think of themselves as Okinawans first and Japanese second because the Japanese took over Okinawa in like 1850. Sure. Yeah, they had their own culture, which was based uh, a little more on China than it was on Japan. Um, and And so – Chosen even talks about it. He's like, hey, we learned these pressure points when the Japanese invaded us. So you get a little bit of that with Chosen, too, which I like. But again, if you guys haven't seen if you guys haven't seen the season with uh, Kamiko, and I want to say it's season two or season three. um, And the Karate Kid, too. Watch the Karate Kid. Watch the Karate Kid, too. Watch the Karate Kid, three. And then watch Cobra Kai. Sure. I know it seems like a lot, but if you do, you'll get more out of it. Oh, speaking of Chosen and Kimiko. So in the Karate Kid 2, there was a big Peter Cetera song that was part of the uh, 
they have redone the video for it with scenes from the old, the, from the original movie and scenes of Daniel going back to uh, Okinawa. Oh, uh, I, need to I, see I have, that. I have included that in our, in our notes. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Because I, sh- I gave them both the original and then, and then the new one, the new one is so good. Oh, I'm going to have to see that. That's yeah, awesome. Well, it, it's in our links. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The name of the song was glory of love. Yep. And it played on the radio all summer in 1986. Uh-huh. It was a huge hit. It was. Oh God. A great big hit. That probably didn't hurt that movie. No. Did, did, um, did Pat Morita, I I'm trying to remember, did he get nominated or win an Oscar for Karate Kid 2? Uh, I think he was just nominated. I don't think Pat Morita ever won an Oscar. Okay. I'm but almost positive he was nominated at least. I, there is a, there is a, uh, <clears throat> there's a, uh, a scene in community where they redo the Karate Kid as, as a stage play. Yeah, it's you goofy told me that. and everything else, but the director of 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 the film goes Norioku Pat Morita tells the or Karate Kid tells the story of 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 Mr Miyagi played by Norioku Pat Morita who went through Manzanar became a war hero lost his wife lost his child lost everything he ever had in his life became a bitter old man and then was redeemed by teaching this boy how to live and to be actually finally become a father. Wow. He should have won an Oscar for all three films. Ralph Macchio showed up. <laughs> That's a direct quote from the director in, in this scene in community. It's great. But yeah, Pat Morita encapsulated all of those things in this in this 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 small quiet unassuming man but there was all this stuff going in and pat marita pat marita is a ghost in cobra kai you know not literally but there are more there are, there are many many scenes with pat marita when daniel's trying to figure things out so he plays like like he's a he's a character in the series, even though the actor has passed away in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's beautiful. I do want to talk about another series, though, kind of quickly. Um, one of the ideas for bringing the series back. Now the writers, um, and I've got some direct quotes here. So in How I Met Your Mother. Season four, the character of Barney Stinson, Neil Patrick Harris, mentions how he considered the Karate Kid a tragedy. Because he was rooting for Johnny Lawrence. Johnny Lawrence was the Karate Kid, star pupil of the Cobra Kai Dojo, not Ralph Macchio's Daniel LaRusso. Uh, This one off joke became a running gag. And later in the series, both William Zabka and Ralph Macchio appeared on the show. Uh, oh, wow. In a 2020 interview with Comic Book Resources, Cobra Kai co-creator Josh Her- Harold acknowledges the parallel fandom of How I Met Your Mother. However, Harold stopped short of giving the CBS sitcom credit for inspiring himself, John Hurwitz, and Hayden Schlossberg to create the series. Um, but it did give them help. What The direct quote was, 
all that stuff just buoyed us a little bit when we were conceiving the show and comparing the storylines to pitch the show because it made them feel confident that they weren't the only ones out there um, who thought that it could be told from Johnny's perspective. They were already writing it. They already had the idea. But when that stuff came up, it was nice to see that other creators have the Karate Kid on their mind and this idea that no one is really a bad guy in this series. Right. Everybody is the hero of their own story. And I think that's, well, I think that's it, what's important. Except, except, like I said, Crease and Terry Silver, they are bad guys. Crease <laughs> and Terry Silver are damaged individuals. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Um, and, and, and you find that if you watch that season three, where Crease basically relives what happened to him when they were captured, mm-hmm. him and Terry Silver when they were captured in Vietnam. How they were forced to fight to the death over a snake pit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That messed them both up. And and you don't recover from that, especially if you don't talk about it. And they didn't. Right. And I realize they, they're the heroes in their own stories, but they 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 are they are bad. They are bad guys, especially well, Terry Silver. They use they use these children's need for a parental figure as currency and that's never a good thing they they also uh they they preyed on weakness yes they preyed on people who were very weak and needed those affirmations and needed the studio you know especially uh, i i i so hate that they brought in that that new kid for season four who was being bullied himself and yep brought him into Cobra Kai and made him into a bully himself. They did the same thing to him that they did to Johnny Lawrence and Eli Moskowitz mm-hmm. Hawk. Um, you know, they did the same thing to those people. And that, that's a good, that, that that's a good segue right there to stop on, on Hawk. I loved his transformation from, Weak kid getting bullied to mm-hmm. the strong, popular kid uh-huh. back down to the weak kid again. Yep. And then and then his rise back into prominence. I love the storyline of Hawk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The storyline of Eli Moskowitz is great. They uh, This poor kid, he had a hair lip scar. <laughs> um, fairly prominent one. Yeah, a fairly prominent one. And uh, he was he 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 got beat up every day. Mm-hmm. He and his friend uh, Dimitri, they got beat up every day. And this is <laughs> this is the two guys that Miguel befriended. And <clears throat> the thing is, as as much as Dimitri and Eli were good friends, Eli ends up bullying even Dimitri. Right. You know. And Dimitri's like, don't you see what's going on? I saw all of this. And Dimitri ends up learning Miyagi-Do karate so he can defend himself. Mm-hmm. But it, it ends up making Dimitri feel better. And and Eli and Dimitri come back together, which is nice. Okay. But yeah. Complete non-related tangent. So for, for a second, let me talk about some of the the – non-realism of the series um 
one of the big ones is the huge fights. And, and I'll get back to that here in a yes. second. I'll get back to that here in a second. But one in high school, which never would have happened. No, no, absolutely not. Um, but but <laughs> Hawk and his tattoo. Yes. This is a kid. Where the yeah. hell where in the hell did he get the ability to go grab a tattoo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Okay, so say he even he can, you know, lie about his age and get in there and get it done. That thing covers his entire back. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's not cheap. So and he goes and gets it changed every once in a while to change to the color of the mohawk he has. I know. Every time I see the tattoo, I think about that. I'm like, how did this kid get yeah. this tattoo? And how does he keep getting tattoos and whatnot? Yeah. But but yeah, the 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 fight in the high school, the the fight in the house. Um, okay, the fight in the house, I can see. I I don't think the fight in the house is unbelievable. Well, it's unbelievable in the aftermath. Okay, there yeah. is not a chance in hell that Daniel and his wife do not call parents, do not call cops, do not you know yeah. their their house was destroyed. Yeah. So that's where I'm talking about the the non yeah. non realism because the fight in the school absolutely would not have happened. Now I understand yeah. they're they're doing it would have started, it. but it would have got shut down. Yeah, um, I understand they're doing it to move the story along, and and it's all part of the plot and everything. But but those two fights are extremely yeah. unrealistic. Now yeah. you get one into- kid wouldn't have went to juvie. All of those kids would have went to juvie. Oh, absolutely. But now you get into season four where you're back in the tournament again. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I love I love how it was. They actually went to, hey, this is not just about fighting. Let's show the techniques because that's what real tournaments do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a skills challenge. Which which they didn't never showed in the in the original movies. It was all about the fight. You know, and again, I understand, you know, it's, it's. Watching people break boards is not gripping drama. <laughs> I've always thought it was cool. Yeah, me too. Boards, bricks, whatever. Yeah, bricks, stuff set on fire. Let's do it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, big, big picture, big picture for me is Cobra Kai has been an amazing series. I can't wait for season five. Um, I think they have it planned out through season six. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of Chosen in season five, which I'm very excited for. Well, Chosen is coming back. Yes. You remember the last, the last scene of season four, season five, season four, four is Daniel calling Chosen and Chosen's like, I'm on my way. Right. Right. I just I, I'm very excited for him to be a bigger part. And 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 overall, this has been this has been a series that as soon as it drops, I'm watching. Yeah. Every single season, no matter what I'm in the middle of, mm-hmm. I've I have stopped for this. Yeah. And and come back to it. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, it's definitely a rewatch because there's stuff I missed. I was like, oh, crap. I didn't see that the first time around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's my, that's my overall, o- overall opinion and overall thing that I would say to, to any of our listeners, if you have not, okay. If you are a fan of the Karate Kid movies from the eighties and you have not watched Cobra Kai, 
you need to stop what you're doing. Okay. Right don't, don't stop the show necessarily. Wait, wait, wait. But, they could come back. Yeah, they could come back. But, but, <laughs> but whatever TV show, whatever you may be in the middle of, stop and watch Cobra Kai. If you've never watched the Karate Kid movies, stop what you're doing, go watch those, and then go watch Cobra Kai because let's they. Give, let's, yeah, let's give them a pause so they can go do that. Okay, there's there's your pause. Okay, there you go. Okay, um, and that's that's my overarching theme with these is yeah. is both both the original. I, I will discount Karate Kid Four. I don't think yeah. you necessarily need to watch no. it, but but you do need to watch one, two, and three. Yes, definitely watch those and then get into Cobra Kai. You don't have to to understand what's going on in Cobra Kai. No. They explain it enough. It it, it but. It enhances it enhances the watching experience if yeah. you watch Karate Kid, Karate Kid Two, and Karate Kid Three, and then Cobra Kai. Yeah, I think it makes it that much better. Whereas Cobra Kai can stand alone, um, I think it makes it that much better if if you watch the movies first. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, most assuredly so, and maybe even give them a little bit of time digest what's good because again. The idea was simple. Kid learns karate to beat up some bullies. And, you know, the kid doesn't have a father figure and this, you know, Okinawan man steps in and kind of takes over. It's a pretty simple idea, but there's so much undercurrent. And you can tell they started that with the first film, but you don't, you know, we saw it a little bit when, you know, he's, he's, he's drinking sake and crying about, you know, his wife and Manzanar and stuff. It's, it's deep. Did you, he, know, did you know that Pat Morita learned all the karate he learned from the movies? He was not a student before the movies. Oh God, no, no, no. He was an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the same with everybody else. W- William Zapp is the only one that kept up with it. Ralph Macchio did a little bit, but yeah, it, it was more about, you know, William Zabka, as I said in the beginning, yeah, yeah. William Zabka and uh, oh, what is Terry Silver's name? Um, were the only two martial artists, and Terry Silver was the only one who was a martial artist before the movie. Uh huh. Thomas Ian Griffin. Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for Cobra Kai. Other than go watch it. Yeah, I'm glad we got to have the conversation on that. We we're we're not the first show covering this. We uh, I I know that two weeks in a microphone uh, did their review of Cobra Kai well before, but I wanted to have, mm-hmm. for us to have our own conversation about it because especially because both you and I are just so enamored with the show. Oh yeah. So great great conversation. Love that. So. For to step over to the murdery side of the house, murder. Um, I'm doing a first here now. Granted, did it for a crossover, but I'm doing my first two part episode of one of our regulars because there was so much here. Oh, wow. I just could not condense it into one episode. So, so what you're going to be getting from me is the murdery for episode 56 and 57. Nice. Uh, today we're going to do part one and next week you'll get part two. And this is the story of Robert Berdella. Robert Berdella. Uh, I got my information from the big book of serial killers, Wikipedia, all that's interesting, Murderpedia and Criminal Mo- Not Minds Wiki. 
So it was a quiet night in Kansas City's historic Hyde Park in 1988 when a man wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck leaped from a second story window of a house where he was being held captive. He crashed a man a- with wearing nothing but a dog collar, nothing but a dog collar Let's leaps out of a window, uh, a second story window. OK, I'm with you so far. Uh, he crashed to the ground and ran to a nearby meter maid who called the police. Police secured a search warrant and proceeded to discover a cavalcade of horrors inside this unassuming house. Opening a second story closet, they discovered a human skull as well as, as well as human vertebrae marked from where they had been cut with a bone saw. In the backyard, they discovered another human head buried in the ground, partly decomposed. When they ventured into the basement, they found large barrels stained with blood, as well as the personal belongings of two missing people and a stack of Polaroid photos depicting naked men being sexually assaulted and tortured. And they also found a stenographer's pad meticulously detailing the abduction, torture, rape, and murder of six young men from around the area. How's that for a start for you? Good Lord, that's kind of chilling. Well, Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. Uh, was an American serial killer. He was known as the Kansas City Butcher and the Collector. He kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered at least six men between 1984 and 1987 in Kansas City, Missouri, after having forced his victims to endure periods of up to six weeks of captivity. Describing his murders as being, quote, some of my darkest fantasies becoming my reality, Berdella pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole for the first-degree murder of one of his victims, Larry Pearson, in August of 1988 and would later plead guilty to one further charge of first-degree murder and four charges of second-degree murder in December of 1988. Berdella became known, as I said, as the Kansas City Butcher due to his practice of extensively dissecting his victims' bodies, which he would then dispose of in garbage bags, and the collector, due to both the movie, which he states was the basis of his fantasies, behind the modus operandi of his crimes and much of the evidence subsequently uncovered by investigators. We talked about the collector back in our live episode with Chris Wilder, because that's because he had a fascination with that book as well. Uh, Berdella, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, yeah, that's right. I remember that. I was like, oh, yeah, the collector. Yep. Uh, Berdella was born on January 31st, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, uh, Ohio, first of two sons born to Robert Andrew Berdella Sr., a die setter for the Ford Motor Company, and Mary Louise Berdella, a homemaker. Berdella's father was a devout Roman Catholic of Italian descent. Uh, The family regularly attended mass and both sons regularly attended religious education courses. As a child, Berdella was intelligent, but a loner who rarely played outside of his home and seldom had friends visit to socialize. He had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses from the age of five because he was severely nearsighted. And he was also diagnosed with high blood pressure, for which he took several medications. Berdella was largely unathletic, whereas his younger brother, Daniel, who was seven years his junior, displayed an aptitude for various sports from an early age. Berdella's father valued sports and physical physical education. He viewed his older son's lack of interest in sports as a sign of failure and often compared him unfavorably with his younger brother. So this is where we talk about humiliation. Humiliation. That's the glasses, the speech impediment. Humiliation. To the younger brother. 
Occasionally, Bordello's father physically and emotionally abused his children and beat them with a leather, leather strap. Abuse. Uh-huh. Uh, Bordello performed well academically, although his teachers often found him difficult to teach in part due to his aloofness and his being the recipient of bullying by other students. Again, humiliation. When Bordello reached puberty, he discovered that he was a homosexual, which was a fact he kept uh, closely guarded, and he did not become open about his sexuality for several years. And in his early teens, he briefly had a girlfriend to try to hide it. By his mid-teens, a beard, a what? A beard. She was his beard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By his mid-teens, Bordella had begun had begun to display a degree of self-confidence, which would often manifest itself via his attitude to other individuals, which he would exert a somewhat rude and condescending attitude, particularly towards women. Uh, and then he then uh, took up cooking and art, and he developed showmanship. On Christmas Day, 1985, uh, when the Berdella family drove to Canton, Ohio, uh, his father died of a heart attack at 39 years old. And Berdella sought solstice in religion and later read extensively about many faiths, but became very cynical about all religion eventually. In 1965, Berdella saw the film adaptation of John Fowle's book, The Collector. Uh, the plot of this movie, again, as a reminder, revolves around a man who stalks and abducts a young woman he finds attractive, holds her captive in his windowless stone basement, viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. After several weeks, the woman dies of a contracted illness, despite her captor's effort to keep her alive. Bradella later stated that this movie formed a lasting impression upon him. Shortly after the death of Bordello's father, his mother remarried, and this was met with resentment by, by Bordello, who viewed the move as a form of betrayal against his father. And as a result, Bordello became, uh, Bordello became increasingly withdrawn and further immersed himself into the solitary activities which he had participated in since childhood, such as painting, collecting, coins and stamps, and writing to foreign pen pals. Bordello would later claim that his hobby of writing to pen pals in countries such as Vietnam and Burma and the fact that these pen pals would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of mythical and historical icons, ancient cultures and architecture would lead to his developing an avid interest in primitive art, photographs and antiques. From approximately 1965, he would begin avidly collecting these artifacts and it would later inspire him to uh, open his own business in 1982. Oh, he's an antiques dealer? Mm Mm-hmm. He would eventually become one, yeah. Pen pals. That's something you don't hear every day. I know, right? It's, yeah, uh, they don't really exist anymore. Really not much. I mean, everybody trades texts and emails and everything like that, so you don't get much on the pen pal front anymore. Uh, in the summer of 1967, Bordella graduated from Cuyahoga Falls High School. Throughout his studies in high school, he had earned such excellent grades and displayed such potential that in 1966, one teacher placed him in an independent study program. Shortly after graduation, Bordella relocated to Kansas City. There, he enrolled in the Kansas City Art Institute with aspirations of becoming a college professor. In his first year at the Institute, Bordello was considered an attentive and and talented student, although by his second year in art school, Bordello became vocally anti-authoritarian. He also became acquainted with a clique of students who supplied him with drugs, who he then sold to other students as a profit. As such, he acquired a reputation amongst his fellow students as a minor drug dealer. 
He also began regularly abusing alcohol, and he also engaged in acts of animal torture on at least two occasions while a student at the Kansas City Art Institute. During one of these instances, he decapitated a duck in the presence of his peers. And in the second instance, he experimented with sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog before killing the dog, supposedly for the sake of art. Now we have abuse of animals. Yep. So we have hit the McDonald triad. Yes. Yeah, it took him a while to get there, but uh, yeah, all all three sides of that triangle are standing. Yes. Uh, by the age of 19, Bordello was arrested for attempting to sell methamphetamines to an undercover officer. He was released after posting a 3,000. Selling meth? Yeah. Oh, I thought when you said drugs, I thought, oh, it's the late 60s. He's selling weed. No, meth. He was released after posting a $3,000 bond and would later plead guilty to the offense, was handed a five-year suspended sentence. One month after his first arrest, Berdella and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. And on this occasion, he couldn't post bonds, so he spent five days in jail, although the charges against him and one of the other students would be later, later be dropped due to lack of evidence. In 1969, Berdella voluntarily withdrew from the Kansas City Art Institute because he received harsh criticism from college administrators for the killing of the duck. But he chose to remain in Kansas City, and in September of that year, he moved into an address within the Hyde Park District, district which was 4315 Charlotte Street. By this stage, Berdella had been openly gay for several years. He began spending much of his pre- free time with male prostitutes, drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. And these typicals, he would typically befriend and try to help free them from their drug addictions and general lethargic or criminal lifestyles. And he was adamant that through much of the 70s, he had no physical contact whatsoever with any of these individuals. Most of his neighbors uh, stated he, that uh, Berdella, uh, Berdella was like a foster parent to most of these youths. In the early 80s, many of his older acquaintances had ceased any form of social contact with him, and Bordelli had become increasingly reliant on these young men as a source of companionship and friendship. He would retrospectively claim to have become increasingly frustrated as many of these individuals to ignorance to his efforts to assist them to steer their lives clear from harm and uh, deterioration. Despite these later claims to investigators, Berdella would often engage in sexual relations with several of these individuals and would establish a degree of control over them in part to engage in these sexual relations by methods including loaning them money and allowing them to live rent free in his house for periods of time. Most of his neighbors felt that uh, Robert Berdella was was a flamboyant yet helpful and civil minded individual, civic minded individual despite the generally unkempt state of his property and somewhat haughty attitude. In the beginning of the 70s, Berdella would assist in the organizational activities of South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, becoming their chairman in the early 80s and encouraging neighborhood watch patrols. So he's trying to become a fine, upstanding citizen. Yes, he needs to be viewed as a fine, upstanding citizen. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, Berdella... Where- Go ahead. This before. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Berdella would also represent his neighborhood at fundraising events for a local public television station, although he would also disengage himself from these events by the mid 1980s. 
Shortly before uh, Bordella had moved into his Charlotte Street address, he began working as a short order cook in various restaurants around Kansas City, in part to help pay the lawyer fees and fines accrued from the drug arrests he endured at the age of 19. As a means of obtaining additional income, he also sold arcane items of art and antiques, which he had accrued and collected from contacts he had established in Africa, Asia, South America, and various Pacific Rim countries. Oh, and yeah. But if he's getting stuff out of Vietnam, he probably got it real or in Southeast Asia real cheap in the early 70s because mm-hmm. those people were trying to get money so they could get out. Oh, yeah. Uh, both his career and side business gradually flourished. And by the mid 70s, Berdella began working as a senior cook at several renowned Kansas City restaurants, also joining a local chef's association and helping establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college. Simultaneously, as his own business began to burgeon, he began to devote more of his attention to his own business as opposed to his work as a chef. And by 1981, he had established several contractual agreements with both national and international contacts for his own business. And he viewed this business as his full-time job and later ceased working as a chef. In 1982, Bordella began renting his own booth at the Westport Flea Market. This store was named Bob's Bazaar Bazaar and primarily sold and traded primitive art, jewelry, and antiques. And though he was making a generous monthly profit, the income he typically generated via this business was often not sufficient to maintain his daily expenses and to make ends meet. As a result, Bordello would occasionally have to sell uh, either sell goods to fellow merchants at a financial loss or steal or scavenge for items to sell at his booth. And then additionally, he would take lodgers in his home as a means of gaining additional income. At his work premises, Bordello became acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howell, who operated a booth adjacent to his own. And soon Bordella became acquainted with Paul Howell's younger son, Jerry. Initially, Jerry Howell and his friends scathed and taunted Bordella over his overt homosexuality. Although, according to Bordella, Jerry Howell later confided in him that he and his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. By the early 1980s, Paul Howell had relocated his business from the Westport Flea Market to a store within a building located close to the intersection of 39th and Main Street. His family also moved into an apartment above the shop, and despite his younger son occasionally engaging in heated arguments with Bordella, they would invariably reignite a casual friendship, often via Bordella offering his legal or financial assistance should Jerry encounter minor scrapes with the law. By the summer of 1984, Jerry Howell had turned 19, and he is believed to have been Bordella's first victim on July 5th, 1984. So he became he became reacquainted with uh, with Jerry in the year prior to his murder and whom he abducted on the promise of driving the youth to attend a dancing contest in Miriam. According to Bordella, he plied Hal with alcohol, Valium and acyprosamine, both in his car and at his house until the youth became unconscious. He then injected Hal with a heavy tranquilizer before binding the youth to his bed. Jerry Howell was restrained to Bordello's bed for a period of approximately 28 hours. Throughout this period of captivity, Bordello repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped, and violated him with foreign objects, repeatedly ignoring Howell's intermittent questioning as to why he was being treated in this manner and pleased to be freed before Bordello, before, according to Bordello, Jerry, quote, either asphyxiated on his own vomit or a combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch a breath. Bordello would later state that he briefly attempted to perform cardiopulmonary CPR 
yeah. upon Hal bef- uh, after he died before dragging his body to the basement. He then suspended Hal's body above a large cooking pot and made several incisions in the U-Center elbows and jugular vein before leaving the body suspended in this position overnight to allow the blood to drain from his corpse. The following day, he dismembered Hal's body using a chainsaw and bony knives before wrapping the sections in newspaper and trash bags. These bags were later placed inside larger trash bags, which Berdella placed outside for a garbage crew to collect and take to a landfill. Holy crap. Can you believe that? That the the the, the waste management people, I'm going to use that phrase, the waste management people collected these bodies unknowingly. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, but you think about in the early 80s, all the stuff we used to throw in the trash, paint, you know, clean out the refrigerator, just throw it all in a trash bag, go stick it outside. Still just, oh, that that one just boggled my mind. Well, I mean, if he. If he de-blooded him. Or. Sanguinated, is that right? Sanguinated. Sure. Let him dry. Right. Beforehand, there might not have been that much smell. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I was still going to be it, but I mean, if he, he, like, from what you're saying, he wrapped it in newspaper, put him in trash bags, put those trash bags in other trash bags. You know, if he'd have put, I don't know, Comet or something in there, they probably wouldn't have even smelled it. Maybe. That's a great point. I didn't think about that because, I mean, my thoughts were like, uh, we didn't exactly have Febreze trash bags back then. No, no, we didn't. But, you know, if, it sounds like he, well, it probably didn't hurt that he was a chef. That's probably how he was able to bone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had those those skills. Uh, police would later question uh, Berdella, and he claimed to have driven the youth to Miriam, Miriam as promised, and then the two had parted company close to Hal's intended destination. Berdella further claimed he had not seen him since. As would be the case with all of Berdella's murders, he kept a detailed log in which he documented each act of sexual and physical torture inflicted upon the victim. And he would recall that like the subsequent victims he would hold captive, Jerry had repeatedly pleaded for his ongoing abuse and torture to cease throughout the period of capture. Although Berdella would either ignore these pleas, taunt his, taunt his victims or threaten them. He would remain adamant to investigators that this was not for his enjoyment, but for what he termed his, quote, physical and mental satisfaction. Oh, I was going to ask why. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's what pleased him. Yeah. Uh, Journaling I mean, it. I mean, he says it's not for his enjoyment, but he said it's what he had to have in, in, in order to be physically and mentally satisfied. So I I don't know. That, that, that seems to me kind of for his enjoyment, too. Yeah. Yeah. So on April 10th, 1985, a former lodger, 20-year-old Robert Sheldon, arrived on Berdella's doorstep asking if he could again stay at his house for a short period of time. According to Berdella, although Sheldon was responsible in paying rent, he considered him an inconvenience. And although he was not physically attracted to the victim, he chose to drug and hold him captive on April 12th when he returned uh, home from work to find Sheldon intoxicated in his home. Circling back just for a second. Mm Mm-hmm. I need to eat. I enjoy eating tacos. Maybe that's it. Uh, okay. That's a fair point. That, yeah. that's, a, that's a good point. Sorry. I, it took a second for it to click over my head. No, I'm that's sorry. Good, please, please continue. That's a good point. I didn't think about that that, that way. 
Uh, Bordello was adamant that he held no firm malice towards Sheldon, but saw him as an individual whom he could express, uh, who, who he could quote, express some of the anger and frustration that I had towards other people on. Sheldon was drugged with sedatives and held captive on, in the second floor bedroom for three days, enduring forms of torture such as the swabbing of drain cleaner in his left eye, the insertion of needles beneath his fingertips, the binding of his wrist with piano wire with the intention of permanently damaging the nerves in his hands, and filling his ears with caulking to reduce his hearing capacity. Good Lord. Three days after Berdella had begun holding Sheldon captive, a workman came to perform some scheduled work on the roof of his home, leading Berdella to chose to fatally suffocate Sheldon by placing a sack over his head, which he then tightened with a piece of rope. Uh, and he then dissected Sheldon's body in the third floor bathroom. Wow. The following June, Bordella found Mark Wallace hiding in his tool shed to seek shelter from a severe thunderstorm. He vaguely knew Wallace as he had previously helped Bordella with yard work. And as had been case, the case with Robert Sheldon, Bordella invited Wallace into his house and noting Wallace's acute state of tenseness and depression, volunteered to inject him with chlorpromazine with the explanation this would calm down and relax him. Uh, Wallace willingly accepted the offer and 30 minutes later, Bordella decided to render him captive. Wallace was carried to the second floor bedroom where he endured almost a day of captivity, captivity and torture, including the application of alligator clips to his nipples to facilitate electrical shocks to his body at any point, which Wallace began regressing into a state of unconsciousness. According to Bordella, one hour after his experimenting with hypodermic needles by inserting them into various muscles upon the victim's back, Mark Wallace died through a combination of the drugs, the gag, and the lack of oxygen. He noted the victim's time of death at being 7 o'clock p.m. on June 23rd. On September 28, 1985, Bordella answered a phone call from an acquaintance named James Ferris, who asked to stay at Bordella's home for a short period of time. Bordella accepted with the specific intention of kidnapping Ferris, whom he arranged to meet in the bar that evening. Despite the brutality to which he subjected his first three victims, Bordella claimed that Ferris was the first victim upon uh, he intentionally inflicted torture. He also informed investigators that there were occasions during his final three victims period of ca captivity where he ceased making additions to his abuse logs because he assumed the victim would, quote, be, a, be a, unable to make it much longer. Bordella brought Ferris home and drugged him with crushed tranquilizers he had concealed in a meal and then tied him to his bed before torturing him almost constantly for approximately 27 hours. The torture included repeatedly administering 7,700-volt uh, 7, electrical shocks to his shoulders and testicles for up to five minutes in each instance and acupuncture via hypodermic needles to the neck and genitals. Ferris gradually became delirious, but Bordello continued his physical and sexual assaults until he noted in his log that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds. The next entry read, quote, very delayed breathing. And finally, Bordello noted that Ferris died with a slang term he had used in his career as a chef, 86, which Bordello later explained uh, meant to throw it out or stop the project or just we're out of it. Yeah. 86 of eel. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this was 86 Ferris. Todd Stoops was a 23 year old drug addict and sometimes prostitute who alongside his wife had lived uh, twice lived briefly at Bordello's house in 1984. 
After Stoops and his wife moved out of Berdella's home the second time, Berdella did not see him again until a chance encounter at Kansas City's Liberty Memorial Park on June 17, 1986. Berdella invited him to his house with an offer of lunch with an added incentive of sex, as Stoops said he stated he needed $13 to purchase drugs. Berdella would later stress to investigators he had been extremely physically attracted to Stoops, and this victim was held captive for two weeks before he died, with him gradually increasing his captive's terror to making him a cooperative and incapacitated sex slave. Berdella used electrical shocks through Stoops' closed eyes in an attempt to blind him and inject a drain cleaner into his larynx to silence him from screaming. During the second week of his capture, Stoops asked Berdella for a soft drink and a sandwich, and when Berdella refused, Stoops burst into tears. On June 27th, he ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing bleeding and discharge. And towards the end of Stoops' captivity, he tried to he, tr he tried to feed his captive ice cream and soup, although Stoops wasn't able to keep anything down. By the final day of his captivity, Stoops was so weak, Berdella later stated he had been unable to breathe in a seating position. And on July 1986, Stoops died. Uh, a forensic pathologist later did testify that the ruptured anal wall caused septic shock, which in the end was what pr uh, proved to be fatal. In the spring of 1987, Berdella became friendly with a 20-year-old named Larry Wayne Pearson. This casual friendship began when Pearson entered his shop and explained to Berdella that as a child, he had held interest in both witchcraft and wizardry. Shortly thereafter, Pearson temporarily lodged with Berdella and willingly performed chores around his home as a means of paying rent. And according to Berdella, he did not initially intend to capture this individual, but formed a plan to do so on June 23rd. When having bailed Pearson out of jail, the young man began jokingly referring to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita. So, you know, it really seems like the ones here draw that he's drawn to are the ones that have problems. He really seems to prey on those with the drug problems, uh, the ones that can't keep themselves out of jail. And and that seems to be the ones he is most attracted to for his crimes, you know? Yeah. You got to think for the bad boys. Yeah. Well, that evening, Bordella insured Pearson uh, became intoxicated before injecting him with chloroprimate. Promazine and moving him down to his basement where he bound Pearson's hands above his head, then linked the rope he had used for this purpose to a brick column before injecting Pearson's larynx with drain cleaner again to keep him from screaming. He then brought an electrical transformer to the basement. And according to Bordello, Pearson was by far the most cooperative of his six murder victims. On the fifth day of his captivity, after uh, uh, having by this stage endured torture, such as the repeated administration of electrical shocks with the transformer and the breaking of several hand bones with an iron rod to render him submissive, Berdella deduced Pearson had earned his trust as to his continued cooperations in his sexual and physical abuse. As a form of reward, Pearson was moved to the second floor with Berdella first informing Pearson that if he continued to cooperate, he would not continue to inflict as much pain upon him as he had done when he had been held captive in the basement. Throughout the latter part of his six weeks of captivity, Pearson trained himself to sleep without moving in order that he had not antagonized Berdella and thus invite further torture and being returned to the basement. After six weeks of captivity in an act of despair, Pearson bit deeply into Berdella's penis before screaming he could not continue to tolerate being treated in this manner. 
In response, Berdella killed Pearson by first bludgeoning him into unconsciousness with a tree limb, then suffocated him with a bag and a ligature before driving to a hospital to receive treatment for his own wound. Pearson's body was later dismembered in the basement and his head initially stored in a plastic bag inside Berdella's freezer before being buried in the backyard. And at 1 o'clock a.m. on March 29, 1988, Berdella abducted his last victim. And that is the end of part one of Robert Berdella. Wow. I was going to I was about to say, what's left? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there was a, there was a lot here. Uh, to go over. And I mean, I found so much information on him and it, I, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine the torture these people had to endure under, under Berdella. Uh, as, as much as I read through it and, and read through it and read through it, it just, it, it boggled my mind. It, it absolutely boggled my mind how how these people could stay alive for so long. I, and, and it seems like Berdella kind of kept bringing them back mm-hmm. um, in order to continue his torture. It was just just horrifying, just horrifying. So, you know, with that, that is the end of part one. You will have to come back next week if you want the uh, the part two to hear the rest of the story of Robert Berdella. I hope Tune you in went- next week. Same I- bat time, same bat channel. Sorry. No, no worries at all. I, I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, my, my nice little two-parter here. That's uh, I, actually, I'm glad you're doing a two-parter. I think that's really kind of cool. I, I, uh, the story not so – well, I, not to say it's a bad story. It's a fascinating story, but enjoy. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess as sick as twisted as I am, I enjoy reading these stories and enjoy, I enjoy learning about them more than anything else. It's not yeah. that I enjoy the torture. It's not that I enjoy the murder and the rape and everything like that. But uh, as, as I've said many, many times, the psychology behind these absolutely fascinating. Why do they do this? Yeah. What is it they keep doing? That's, that's the same in in all these cases. And, you know, I think we've both expanded our understanding of this just by you going through these stories. It's like, because the same things keep popping up. Sure. McDonald triad. And what is it? We always say, if you don't want to have a serial killer, don't Don't beat beat your your kids. kids. See that over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, that that falls in the McDonald triad because typically abuse is is very humiliating. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's kind of where a lot of it will start. And that's where a lot of people's noodles get twisted up. Yeah. So. So anyway. That'll take us to the end of our recording week. Uh, as a reminder, please do go to iTunes or Spotify, anywhere you can to leave a review. Leave, a, leave us a five-star review, if you would, and a rating. Uh, leave a rating and a review, if you would. It really, really helps us. It's completely free to you and only takes a minute or two. Yep. You can find our website at nerderymurdery.com, where you can find links to everything we talked about, as well as pictures. Uh, you can also find information about our exclusives on our website, which are only available to our patrons. But you That's can correct. find a link to our patron on our website if you wish to donate to our show to help us help keep us going. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. And last, you can also find our merchandise where if you wish to show off your nerdy and murdery fandom, you can get merchandise there as well. We have some quite a bit of merchandise out there you can get. So please do at least take a look at that. 
And with that, I have been Zig with your nerdery. And I'm Jeffrey with your murdery. Cheesy music. Music.